Grace and mercy and peace be to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. This is a season of expectation and uh, this is a time when a lot of churches and a lot of schools do Christmas pageants. I've been associated with them from the days when I was a school teacher or a school principal, pastor. I've seen lots of them, like many of you. Uh, you know they generally kind of don't go through the Christmas story and there's always a part in a Christmas pageant for Mary and Joseph, and then they've always, you know, a bunch of uh, little guys that they always kind of strap little fake beards on and make them shepherds. Then there are all the little kids who can't do much else, but then they have little pieces of gold stuff in their hair so that they can be the angels. And then there's a few wise guys or wise men, and then we have people dressed up like cows or sheep, or some big churches, they actually have real cows and sheep, and, and sometimes they even have a little drummer boy. Even though he's not in the Gospels, Charles reminds me of one of the great manger scenes I've ever seen up in Missouri. It had all of that kind of stuff, but it also had Santa Claus bowing by the manger. But that's not even the best part. On the other side of the manger bowing was Homer Simpson. Now, I don't know, maybe that's a Missouri thing. I'm not sure. But there's always one person in the Christmas pageant that never, ever has a part. I'm never quite sure why, but it's John the Baptist. <laughs> and maybe this is why he never has a part, because he's a pretty rough and tough guy. Yeah, happy Advent, you brood of vipers. Now, the question would be, why are we looking at him again as we prepare or mend Christmas? Now, as I've mentioned in the last couple of weeks, the series follows the lectionary readings from the Gospel of Luke, which have been read uh, in worship during the weeks before Christmas for centuries. And the theme can be summarized with just one word, and that one word is expectation, because really Christmas is all about a season of expectation. Now, I want you to think back to Christmases when you were a child, you growing up. Maybe you remember what it was like. And I'm going to go back to what I can kind of remember. You know, in your house, uh, you kind of put up a tree shortly after Thanksgiving. It was generally a pretty beautiful tree, kind of a classic 1960s tree. Uh, it had those round glass ornaments. It had Christmas lights with those gigantic bulbs on them. And maybe you even had some of those that when you plugged it in, they kind of bubbled. You know, you had to kind of watch for those. Uh, maybe you had a Christmas tree that when you had it all decorated, you just hung those thin uh, silver icicles all over the branches. But you couldn't put them on the lower branches because the cat would eat them and then up chuck them on the carpet. It, uh, but then when it was all done, one of the last things you did was you put the star on the top, and then you took out that can of aerosol spray, and you sprayed snow over the entire thing. Now, here we are in 2015, and that might sound like kind of a tacky tree. I go you one better. My grandparents brought it out of the basement. They had these tubes. They pulled these things out. They were all silver, stuck them in a silver branch, put it up, and put this little thing that had three or four colors that revolved around to change the color of our tree. Now, you could say that was tacky, but guess what? It was in the 1960s, and we thought it was way cool. <laughs> then what happened? After you get the tree all set up, gifts would begin to magically appear underneath. And when you got on your hands and knees, these gifts, had some of them had your name on them. And when no one was looking, you'd pick one up and you would shake it. 
And if nothing was in there, you'd squeeze it and think, oh, no, not socks again. <laughs> Sometimes maybe you would even hold them up to the light to see if you could see through. Or maybe you thought, man, Superman can do it. I'm going to try my x-ray vision on this and see what's underneath the paper. Now, I would say is back then, when you were growing up, it was exciting to know that just in a few weeks, uh, your room was going to have some new stuff in it. Now, Christmas was all about expectation. Christmas Eve, in many families, uh, was one of the longest nights of the year. But Christmas Day would be the culmination of all of your Advent expectation. Now, I'm going to back up now, not to the 60s, but rewind a few thousand years before that. And I want to tell you a little bit about the Jewish culture. They lived with that same kind of expectation about the coming Messiah. For centuries, God's chosen one had been proclaimed by the prophets. Isaiah talked about him. Jeremiah talked about him. Many of them talked about him. All of Israel was waiting in expectation for his arrival, for the day when the Messiah would come and he would usher in a new kingdom of peace, a new kingdom of prosperity, a new kingdom of justice. And historians tell us that this sense of anticipation had reached its peak in the years right before the birth of Jesus. Not only were the Jews awaiting the imminent arrival of their Messiah, but other nations surrounding them also believed that a new king was soon to be born, which kind of explains why, even with the big star, that the wise men traveled such a distance to find Jesus. Now, living in that that cultural sense of expectation, every preacher or every uh, uh, every prophet was extremely popular. People always wanted to know, as soon as a new guy popped up on the scene, are you the Messiah? Now, this was asked in our text of John the Baptist. Are you the one we're looking for? And John said, no, I'm not him, but he's coming soon. I'm only baptizing with water here at Bethany beyond the Jordan, but he's going to come and he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now, he is saying that when the Messiah actually does come, he's going to change your heart. He's going to change your soul. He's going to change your being. He's going to fill you with the spirit of the presence of God, and he will fill your life with purpose and power and passion. So John was preaching a message of expectation. He was also preaching a message of preparation, and he preached that the Messiah was on the way, and you better get ready. But he also preached another message that was not very popular, a message of repentance. He told this brood of vipers who showed up to hear him preach that they had better turn from their sins and be baptized. Now, here we are 2,000 and some years later, and we still recognize baptism as an integral part of our Christian tradition. It's, generally speaking, the first step you take in the Christian life. You know, maybe for most of you it took place when you were just months old. Maybe for some of you uh, it came later in life, even as a young adult or an adult. But first century Jews saw baptism as a little bit different than you and I did. Baptism was not a ritual for Jews. It was a ritual for Gentiles who were converting to Judaism. Now you might wonder why. Well, very simply because Gentiles, you see, needed to be washed. 
because they were considered to be unclean. And since they'd never been any part of the Jewish law, they were dirty people. And so this baptism, taking them down to Jordan and dunking them under or whatever they did, kind of uh, washed away all of their sinful Gentile nature, making them new people, a member of the Jewish faith. And it was believed that baptism was not necessary then for people who were born Jewish. Because Jews really believed that they did not enter this world bearing the same stain as Gentiles. They believed that they had a favored status with God. But now, here comes John the Baptist. And he begins preaching, being Jewish is not good enough. You need to turn from your sins and you need to start living a good life. And to demonstrate this repentance, he said... I'm going to challenge you to go through this ritual of baptism as well because it, it, it symbolizes the end of the old life and the beginning of a brand new life. Now, again, you might say, what does this have to do with Christmas? Well, John the Baptist preached this very simple message. Get ready to receive the Messiah in your life. Now, what do we do? What's Advent all about? It's helping you get ready to receive this Messiah one more time. Each year at Christmas, we actually have the opportunity to follow John's message. We have the opportunity to prepare our hearts for the coming of the Messiah into our lives. Now, understand this. You know, if you're a Christ follower, he's already in your life. That's for sure. This isn't about being saved all over again or walking the aisle or getting rebaptized or whatever. It's all about, maybe it would be called increasing the power of his presence in your life. <clears throat> now, John used this phrase. He said he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And maybe all the candles that we see reminiscent of fire, I, I really don't know. But the Christmas season reminds us of the importance of living in expectation and the importance of preparation. I mean, John told his followers, prepare your hearts, get your lives in order. Because the Messiah is coming, and he's coming soon. Now today, I'm just challenging you the same thing. Prepare your hearts. That's what, this is a great time of the year for them. Prepare your heart, prepare your life for the presence of Jesus so that he can fill you with his spirit and with fire and with passion and with purpose and with joy and with life abundant and life everlasting and all the other great stuff he has to offer. So here we come back finally to our text, Luke chapter 3. If you ever wonder if we're going to get around to it. Here John the Baptist preaches a sermon to people who came to hear him. And in this sermon, he tells them three things that they need to do in order to prepare for the coming of the Messiah. And as you wait on God in your own life, whether it's Christmas time or whether it's 115 degrees in Texas in July, I'm going to share with you just three simple little words. I think if you kind of tuck them in the back of your mind and keep them in your heart, would help. The very first word is generosity. Generosity. In verses 10 and 11, again, of our text, again, it says, What should we do then? The crowd asked. Talking to Jesus, or John. And John said, The man with three tunics should share with him who has none, and the one who has food should do the same. Now, what's the principle that John the Baptist is teaching here? Now, he's not asking anybody to do without. He's just asking us to share with others from our abundance. Anybody only have one coat? 
Nobody. So you all got more than one. Do you sometimes stand and look at your closet and say, I don't know which one to wear? I wonder how many of you, it might, I might get one out of these out of the men, but I, the rest of them I'm going to include you. Is there anybody here only has one pair of shoes? I mean, every woman thinks, that's a stupid question. <laughs> I mean, but I think I have probably at least six pair. Okay. We all have stuff. And, and I know that there are always people, when they hear this thing about sharing with other people from our abundance, they say, well, I don't have that much to give. Well, I would say then give what you can. It was Mother Teresa a long time ago who said, if you can't feed a hundred people, feed one. You just do what you can. Now, with few exceptions, everybody I know is generous to some extent. I was really pleasantly surprised last Sunday, Quentin, when you said, if we don't get all those things off that angel tree, the church will take care of it. I'm not sure that I would I would love to think that every church would do that. But I have a feeling there are probably a few that say we just couldn't get them all in here. Sorry, whatever, out of your abundance. Now, I really don't know anyone who refuses to ever do anything for anyone at any time. You're already a generous person. I mean, I've already been witness to that, as you guys have seen to it, that an entire Hispanic church at Angola not only had Hispanic Bibles, but you've also seen to it that they now have those bilingual Bibles with English and Spanish in them. But I'm just challenging you to look for some ways, again, to increase your generosity. I mean, for example, if you, you give a certain amount of money to a charitable organization, maybe increase it, even a little bit. Or if you volunteer time someplace, consider increasing it, even just a little bit. Just ask yourself, how can I be more generous with what God has blessed me with? Can I help more people than are already helped? How do I stretch myself to do more? Now, I'm going to give you an interesting illustration. I still find a hard time wrapping my head around this. But do you know that for $80 billion a year, it is said that we could eliminate the conditions of poverty that exist through much of this world. $80 billion. Everyone would have clean water, sanitation, basic medical care, job training, and the price tag, they say, is $80 billion. That sounds like a lot of money. And it is. But then this article went on and said, but if every American Christian would just increase their giving to a tithe, and by the way, American Christians by and large give about 2 to 3%, according to studies. But if every American Christian would increase their giving to a tithe, 10%, there would be an increase of more than $90 billion, which means that the church, the Christian church, has the economic power to wipe out poverty. But for some reason, we don't. Now, you can argue with those statistics, which is only one article I read through Church Growth Magazine. Now, I'm not telling, that, telling you that to make you feel guilty or make me, myself feel guilty, but, but I'm challenging you just to practice increasing generosity. That's why if you go back to Malachi chapter 3, there's a wonderful it says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. That's God's house. This is the place where you worship that there would be food, that this house can take care of its own needs, that there may be food. And then he says, it's the only time in the Bible God ever says this, put me to the test. Test me in this, said the Lord God Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven 
and pour out so much blessing that you will not have enough room for it. I mean, sometimes it almost seems that you can't give money away fast enough, believe it or not. He's saying, practice generosity. I think that's what John the Baptist is telling us to practice. And I'll bless you like never being blessed before. I mean, it's not saying that if you give an extra ten bucks, you're going to find an extra hundred dollars in an envelope. Not that. God will bless you in some way. I, I just gave away five dollars to a four-year-old boy, and you know what blessed me most was his smile and his little, his little voice that said thank you. I was blessed by that. See, one of the ways that we live in expectations of the fulfillment of God's promises is just increasing our generosity. Here's another thing. It's integrity. Tax collectors also came to be baptized. Isn't that interesting? Teachers, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you're required to, he told them. Now, understand that tax collectors were Jews that were hired by the Romans to collect a certain percentage of taxes, but they were also told that whatever else you could get is all yours. You all remember the story of Zacchaeus, the little guy. Then there's some soldiers who came up and said, And what should we do? And he said, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. Now, notice he did not tell tax collectors to stop collecting taxes. He didn't tell soldiers to stop being soldiers. He just said, do your job with integrity. Do the job you're paid to do. Don't take advantage of other people. See, integrity is defined by what you do much more than what you believe. I, I think it was Dwight Moody who, who said, integrity is doing the right thing even when no one is looking. I put it, heard it put another way. It's what, you know, what other people, you know, are you doing the same thing in the light as you are in the dark? Let me give you a little example. I'm sure you've all heard of Chris Montgomery, right? Probably not. But Chris Montgomery is a 19-year-old young man who sweeps out the floors of movie theaters between features. Uh, one day he was sweeping up and he picked up a bulky envelope that had more than $24,000 in cash in it. Now it seems that there was a, a woman business owner who had prepared kind of a large cash deposit, but she decided to take her daughter to the movie before she went to the bank. She put the money in her purse, it fell out during the movie. And Chris Montgomery found it and did the only thing that he knew to do. He turned it in. Now, I don't know about you, but I think it's probably kind of rare that someone would stumble across $24,000 but have other opportunities, you know, and turn it in. But there are many other opportunities to practice integrity. You're eating at a restaurant. You get the check and you see the server forgot to add your dessert to the check. What do you do? Whoopee, free dessert. You forgot. You turn in your expense reports or when you do your taxes or when you simply show up to work, what do you do? One of the most interesting stories a pastor friend of mine in Arizona told me. They were taking a trip from Arizona up to Minnesota to see his folks. And he thought maybe they would get the car washed before they left. It's one of those car washers where you pull up and everybody gets out and you kind of walk through and watch your car go through this thing. He got up to the counter and he saw some cassette, well, some CDs actually, uh, Beach Boys CDs, I remember he said, because he loved the Beach Boys. And he saw that they were um, like $10 each and so he bought three of them. 
And he walked outside. His car was done. And when he got outside, he realized that he had been charged for the car wash by this young girl, but had not been charged for the three Beach Boy CDs. And he went back in. He said to the young lady, I'm sorry, but you forgot to pay for, uh, you forgot to charge me for these. And she said, I know. See, I was at your church this morning and heard you talk about integrity and honesty. And I wanted to see whether you really were. That's a scary story. Like, how many people might actually be testing your integrity or honesty? I mean, what can we do to ensure that our Christian walk matches up with our Christian talk? I mean, living with integrity is an act of preparation. Start looking for ways to increase your commitment to living with integrity. And then the word consistency. And you'll notice that John the Baptist, by the way, was no Dale Carnegie. You know, how to win friends and influence people. When the crowds came to hear him, he didn't open up with, well, good afternoon, welcome, ladies and gentlemen, friends and neighbors. We're so happy to have you as a guest today in our house of worship. He probably flashed his big smile. Instead, in verses 7 to 9, you brood of vipers. You ever seen a nest of snakes? I have on a couple of getting Not fun. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruits in keeping with repentance. And don't begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Don't begin to tell everybody you're saved just because you're Lutheran. Boo. But see, they were saying, hold it. We're sons of Abraham. We're in. He said, I tell you that these stones, out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. And then he talks about the axe. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not bear good fruit is going to be cut down and thrown into the fire. Now, as a young kid, when I read these stories, I, I kind of wondered why, man, John seemed cranky. I mean, why did John preach so harshly? I mean, this guy was the forerunner of real hellfire and brimstone preaching. Well, he did it because he was trying to shake up a very complacent group of people. As I mentioned earlier, there were those among his listeners who thought just the fact that I was born into this religious heritage is enough. I'm better than most people. I have favor with God. There were also among those listeners who liked to hear good gospel preaching, but they never, ever put it into practice. And that's a phenomenon today that, by the way, exists in many churches today. I mean, believe it or not, there, there are some places where people flock to hear a good preacher, a good teacher, or a really exciting worship leader, and they come really more for the entertainment value, and they leave without ever confronting the need for change in their lives. So John was saying, folks, it's time to quit playing religious games It's time to get serious about living a life that is fully devoted to God. Bill Hybels, who pastors one of the largest churches in America, Willow Creek, up near Chicago, I think part of their vision is to make uh, people into fully devoted followers of Christ. Harvard Business School came out to see how they did that. And they invited him to come and listen to the guy who did the study And after the guy presented what he found out, the professor asked him, he says, this stuff, fully devoted followers of God, what do you think after studying this church? And the the young man said, that's got to be one of the hardest things anybody could ever want to do. 
that's what that church is all about, to turn people into fully devoted followers of God. See, in verse 8, he said, produce fruits in keeping with repentance. He's saying the way you prepare your heart for the coming of the Messiah is to practice being the same day after day after day after day after day and so on. In other words, if you're really serious about being a Christ follower, that second word probably ought to mean something. It means follow, follow. It means turning your life over to God to be serious about it every day. Practice consistency. It's the message I think we all need to hear today. If you're waiting for God to do something in your life, if you're living in a season of expectation, you need to prepare yourself for God's blessing by practicing consistency day after day, hour by hour. I think I said in Bible class this morning, there's all kinds of people who love the promises of God in the Bible. But as far as I can tell in my reading of the Bible, every promise has some premises. We all want our lives to go straight down the road smooth without any problems. And so we pick up on Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 where it says, And he will make straight your paths, but we forget the premises, that we need to trust in the Lord with all our heart and lean not on our own understanding, or in all our ways acknowledge him. Are you doing what it takes to receive the blessing? So don't live by emotions. Live by your commitments. When you hear a word from the Lord... Follow it. When the Spirit convicts you of a sin, stop it. When you have an opportunity to do good, take it. See, this day after day, living with consistency in your walk with Christ. See, this is the whole thing again about a season of expectation, a season of preparation. But Christmas reminds us that God comes to us when we needed him most. John's whole message was he's here, he's among us. Prepare to receive him. And Jesus still wants to enter your existence and to baptize you with the Holy Spirit with fire. If your life sometimes seems cold and empty, he wants to fill that with joy and passion. If you feel like your life is kind of going nowhere, he wants to guide your path so that you're going somewhere. I mean, just like he came into the world that needed him so badly 2,000 years ago, he's ready again to enter this world again to prepare our hearts To receive the promises of God that teach you to prepare your heart by practicing maybe three little words. Generosity, integrity, and consistency. May God enable us by the power of the Spirit to do so. Amen.